Welcome to Talking Biotech, the podcast dedicated to exploring the latest advancements in biotechnology, sponsored by Calabra, the R&D software that accelerates scientific discovery with AI. Each week, we'll dive into the latest innovations and discoveries with industry leaders and pioneers. Now, here's your host, Dr. Kevin Fulta. Welcome to the Talking Biotech Podcast. It's the weekly podcast about agriculture, medicine, and conservation with an emphasis on biotechnology and the good things that new innovations can do for people and the planet. My name's Kevin Folta. I'm a professor, podcast host, uh, do some keynote speaking, work on a farm, lots of different things in a diverse background. And one of the stories that we've always been interested in is the molecular basis of sleep and sleepiness. Why do we do it? And if you think about it, it seems like a really bad idea. I know that I waste about 25 to 33% of my life sleeping, and it seems like I should be doing something else. But at the same time, we understand that sleep is probably a really important area for brain health. And the emerging evidence suggests that lack of sleep could have detrimental consequences. Today's guest really digs into the molecular basis of why we start to feel tired. And this is really interesting because it deals with DNA damage. So we'll uh, talk about that today. We're speaking with Professor Lior Applebaum. He's a faculty member in the Goodman Faculty of Life Sciences at the Ganda Multidisciplinary Brain Research Center in Bar-Ilan University in Ramat Gan, Israel. Welcome to the podcast, Dr. Applebaum. Hi. Yeah, thank you for coming back again. And uh, you're just outside of Tel Aviv, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. We're just in the area of Tel Aviv. I'm in very close, the suburb of Tel Aviv. Yeah, it's 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 one of my favorite cities in the world. I love Tel Aviv. I think it's such a great place to, to visit. And I really enjoyed my time in Israel. So great to connect with you. Yeah, it's a kind of Miami of Middle East. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it was. Really, I actually ran all the way from. I used to run all the way down to Jaffa, just down the beach. It was just so gorgeous. So exactly. let's um, let's start at the beginning. Um, sleep, like I was mentioning before, seems like a really bad idea because it's all. What you know? Why are we wasting this time resting when we could be working? Right? But it's even worse for other animals because evolutionarily. You're vulnerable if you're sleeping. It's when your predator can find you or, you know, if you're a fish, for instance, and you're taking these sleep breaks, it leaves you vulnerable. So why do we need to sleep? Exactly. It's not only animals that leave them vulnerable. I mean, also for us, if we drive on the highway and we fall asleep, we can get, have an accident and get killed. I mean, it's it's really dangerous to, to fall asleep and actually more dangerous, I mean, more how to understand i mean it's more difficult to stay awake than to not to eat not to drink or not to do any other physiological uh, behavior so it's really a big enigma for for many many years and there is many and and all on uh, the other end all animals sleep so it's obviously something is very beneficial uh, to the brain if we think about evolution so because it's so conserved uh, among animals so why do we sleep is a big question, and there is many different explanations that were raised in the past, uh, including one of the, the most 
striking one is a memory consolidation and synaptic homeostasis, synaptic plasticity, uh, macromolecular synthesis during sleep maybe, and some uh, recent, 10 years ago, more or less 10 years ago, there was a study that shows that maybe there, there is a metabo- metabolic clearance that we, basically we drain the sewage from the brain during sleep. Uh, but it's all can connect, can be connected because uh, we suggest, I mean, that maybe sleep is important for the single neuron. So because neuron is such a special cell that uh, is not divided and uh, cannot be replaced, so we need to take care of this neuron. So the, one of uh, one of the ideas of us and others is that maybe this sleep is important for the cellular maintenance of a, a single neuron. And specifically, we recently found that uh, during uh, wakefulness, you have to have some kind of a price for wakefulness, right? I mean, this is why we, we feel tired and go asleep. Something is accumulated in the brain uh, that requires sleep. So what we found is that uh, during wakefulness, DNA damage is accumulated in specific neurons. And it sounds uh, bad, but it's actually a, a physiological normal uh, process, DNA breaks. Uh, so DNA breaks in order to the genes to uh, uh, transcribe, to, to activate, uh, and various di- different processes cause DNA damage, included, including even neuronal activity itself cause DNA damage. And what we found that during uh, wakefulness, at least in fish, in a zebrafish, uh, DNA damage is accumulated in the brain, and during sleep, this DNA damage level reduced back to normal, so we can uh, start a new day uh, awake and healthy. And and so when you were doing this research, it really looked at this idea of the onset of sleep or the urge to sleep, so tiredness in a way, which you refer to as homeostatic sleep pressure. Is this just a cue that there's damage occurring beyond a certain threshold that we have to correct in order to maintain neuronal health? Exactly. This is uh, one of the, the motivation to the, to the recent studies that we published is basically what is this homeostatic pressure? I mean, what do we measure in the brain? I mean, how do we know that we are tired? How do the brain know that we are tired? So... We basically suggest that this is this homeostasis is the DNA damage. So how can we test it? So we induce DNA damage with various uh, methods, including optogenetic, chemical, mutagens, radiation, UV, various methods that can induce DNA damage specifically in neurons in the brain. And we measure the DNA damage and the sleep uh, rebound. I mean, what happened to the fish following this damage? And we succeed to, to show a, a very nice co- positive correlation between the amount of DNA damage that, you, that a single cell accumulate, is accumulated and the amount of DNA damage and the amount of sleep required. So the more DNA you have, the more sleep uh, uh, you need. And then also the opposite. Uh, using this, if this is true, uh, we speculate that maybe there is a specific time of, uh, amount of sleep that is uh, required for the fish. So, for example, if if it uh, during sleep you reduce your DNA damage, 
you uh, reach a certain uh, threshold that uh, you can basically get, uh, be awake because you don't need to repair anymore. And, and so this is another, the second experiment that we did. So we basically truncated uh, the, uh, the length of the night. This, uh, fish are highly sensitive to, to light, so they wake up when, you, uh, 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 when light's on. So we gave them two hours of sleep, four hours of sleep, six hours of sleep, eight hours of sleep, ten hours of sleep, and we test the amount of DNA damage in sleep. And we found that six hours of sleep is the optimal or minimum time of sleep that required for fish in order to repair the DNA damage and wake up. If you give them only two hours, for example, so they will wake up a little bit from the light, but they will keep sleeping even under strong uh, light uh, radiation in order to repair and to reduce uh, the DNA damage back to normal, and then they wake up. Well, one of the questions that people always have when we think about these studies is the model that's being used to study. So why is the zebrafish such an appropriate model for this particular research? Yeah, exactly. So uh, DNA damage, you can um, um, measure also in uh, invertebrate like Drosophila or C. elegans or worms, or, and of course in mammals like uh, mice and even humans. But, but zebrafish is stand in exactly in the middle. So it's a vertebrate with conserved brain with all the parts and everything, the spinal cord and all the, the brain structures that are very similar in function and structure to even human on, on one hand. On the other hand, is a, it's a, a high throughput a genetic model like an invertebrate. So you can manipulate genes very easily. You can overexpress or knock down or knock out with CRISPR and various methods. So it's very convenient. And most importantly for this study, so uh, zebrafish enable live imaging in transparent brain. Because a major challenge in, in order to understand sleep is, is, uh, is to be able to image the single neuron and even sin single particle within the cell during sleep and during wake in live and behaving animal. And this is uh, doable in, uh, in zebrafish because the brain is so, so accessible because everything is transparent, including the skull in young uh, zebrafish. And really the big breakthrough in your recent publication. So this was in uh, published in Molecular Cell in November last week, in November 18th or so. And the, the, the really additional add-on to this that was really important was the role of poly-ADP ribose polymerase, or these, this enzyme called PARP. Or PARP. And there's a number of PARPs inside cells that are associated with DNA damage and repair, um, or associated with repair of DNA damage, I should say. So what does this enzyme normally do in the cell? And well, let's start out with that. But what does it normally do in the cell? Yeah. So PARP1 is a well-known uh, key uh, repair protein. And, and when I say key repair protein, it's, so it's what we like about this protein is that it's one of the first to recruit to DNA damage sites. So it's kind of an, an antenna that tell all the tell all the other system, hey, we have a DNA damage site here. We need to come and fix it. So it recruits to the DNA damage site, clusters there, and then recruit all other repair system of uh, and various repair system, including repair system of 
double strand breaks, uh, single strand breaks, and various systems. So uh, this was known before, and it was a study, uh, a lot of study, or a lot of research was done on PARP in the context of cancer, because obviously it's uh, highly involved in repair system, and if you inhibit the, the PARP1, you can uh, inhibit repair. So this was known uh, before our study. What we did, and we link PARP1 to sleep, uh, what we did is we basically over, uh, we basic first uh, measure the activity of the, the protein, and we saw that like DNA damage, it accumulates during wakefulness and recruited to the DNA, DNA damage site during wakefulness, even uh, after sleep deprivation, you see more and more PARP cluster. And on the other, uh, and in contrast, during sleep, uh, PARP uh, activity is reduced. So this is one. And then we start to play, like we said, with zebrafish, it's relatively easy and straightforward to manipulate a specific gene. So here we overexpress, or inducibly even, overexpress PARP1 using Hitchcock system. And we saw that the fish sleep more. In contrast, in, on the other hand, when we inhibit PARP1 with CRISPR system, we saw that the fish sleep less. We also did it with pharmacology. Again, like I said, uh, different drugs or drug inhibitor to PARP were already developed because of the cancer treatment to, in order to prevent or inhibit repair. So we inhibit the activity of PARP1, and we saw that like knockdown of PARP1, sleep is uh, reduce in uh, fish that were treated with a PARP inhibitor. So together, everything points to the role of PARP in a, a sleep promoter. So what we suggest that PARP1 basically sends, like I said, the DNA damage, which is the sleep pressure. So it sends that DNA damage is accumulated in the brain. And then the next step, it uh, once the DNA damage reaches a specific threshold, or PARP1 levels reach a specific threshold, it drives sleep or promotes sleep in order to start the repair. No, very good. There's a lot to unpack there, and I'd like to look at that again on the other side of the break. So today we're speaking with Dr. Lior Applebaum. He was we're talking about the recent paper in Molecular Cell that connects sleep to its specific molecular components and really describes, at least in a model system and then in, in zebrafish and mice, the contribution of the PARP1 molecule to this process. This is the Talking Biotech Podcast. We'll be back in just a moment. We are finally seeing golden rice reach a fraction of the people it was meant to serve more than 20 years after its development. We're now 12 months after the development of a vaccine to significantly slow the spread of a troublesome virus. And vaccination rates teeter around 50%. Now here are two technologies that are not reaching those that are meant to serve. And it's part of an ambitious disinformation campaign that seeds fear and unnecessary doubt for profit and politics. Now it's the full-time job of these folks and 
We in science and farming can't possibly commit that kind of time. But there are a lot more of us than there are of them. Imagine if we all engaged bad information when we encountered it. On the Twitters, on the Facebooks, in the comment section of news articles, on kooky websites, or even across the dinner table of your favorite whack job aunt. Now your mission, talking biotech listener, if you choose to accept it, is to engage. Spend a few minutes providing good information where you see something suspect. Remember, you're not speaking to the crazies. You're providing solid, credible, referenced information to those who don't know who to trust. So what information will those concerned folks get to see? An anti-vax website? Joe Mercola, Del Bigtree, USRTK, Food Babe! For you. The change we need to see starts when we step into the conversation. It is not someone else's problem. We all have a moral obligation to inform others using kind persuasion and presentation of evidence. Now, back to the Talking Biotech Podcast. And now we're back on the Talking Biotech Podcast. We're speaking with Dr. Lior Applebaum of Bar-Ilan University. And we're talking about the molecular basis of tiredness and sleep, sleepiness or sleep. Um, and what, what has been, and I just want to really make sure we consolidate this. Um, so it's been demonstrated that when you damage DNA, uh, that there, there's damaged DNA that occurs during wakefulness or during awakeness, and then uh, the DNA damage seems to correlate. And then when you have DNA damage, you can uh, recruit this enzyme called PARP1, which is responsible for repairing double strand breaks or playing a role in double strand break repair. And um, PARP1, uh, but then still just a correlation, right? It's just, we find it there and that's where it is. So then your lab did the next important experiment is what happens when you knock it out? or when you overexpress it. And that when you do that, you can in essence say, okay, is it just happening because of something else? Or is this the central component that is modulating sleep behaviors? So I think I have it right. Yeah, I mean, uh, so before even when we, you overexpress or inhibit it, we, what we did first is just we tried to play with sleep. We saw that indeed the accumulation of PARP1 is during wakefulness and even after sleep deprivation, and that it reduced during sleep. Then, we, like you said, we, we manipulate the, the genes and, and the protein and inhibit the protein, and we saw that indeed PARP1 promotes sleep. So it's basically mediates the amount of pressure or the sleep pressure, the amount of DNA or the sleep, DNA damage or the sleep pressure with the, the need to sleep. Uh, the, the, the next step that we, uh, we found in this uh, recent paper is that actually sleep induce or increase repair in, in neurons. This was not known before. So we developed several tools that we can basically uh, uh, quantify the amount of repair in live animal. So using imaging, we can basically image, image specific repair protein 
like uh, KU80 and RAD51 and various repair uh, uh, protein. And we saw that indeed the recruitment of those repair protein happened during sleep and is inhibited by sleep deprivation. So again, what we suggest here is that PARP1, which is known to, rec- to recruit repair system, it's increased during wakefulness and uh, uh, call all the repair system, please come to the repairs, uh, to the DNA damage, uh, damage site. And apparently this process is more efficient uh, during sleep. So it's not that, uh, something to clarify here, it's not that there is no repair during wakefulness. We always online have repair uh, break and repair, break and repair to make sure that the DNA stay intact. However, it seems that in neurons in the brain, this process is more efficient during uh, sleep in offline mode. Yeah, and I, I mentioned before that it was responsible for repairing double strand breaks, but I but I think that PARPs are also in, uh, part of all single strand breaks as well, right? I mean, any any are they re- in most DNA damage that's occurring, or is it strictly a double strand break? Yeah, so. So, so we did not found a, a specific uh, a bias to one of those damage. So we induced DNA damage also with UV, for example, and other, and with neuronal activity, as we and with uh, specific drugs that induce only double strand break. So, and different uh, stimuli when different DNA damage result in increased sleep and increased power. So we don't. For now, we are not. Uh, we don't think that there is specific DNA damage that uh, that sleep is required for. I mean, that sleep in, uh, basically promotes the repair of various uh, DNA damage uh, breaks. Now, I guess the thing that comes to mind because I teach about this stuff. We talk about PARPs in the context of uh, BRCA repair for uh, breast cancer, and we know that there's a number of different. Um, inhibitors of PARPs. There's some monoclonal antibodies and other therapies they use. And so just as kind of an aside, when they give those inhibitors, do they ever report sleeplessness or other types of insomnia by removing the PARPs from, uh, or no, no, it'd be more sleepiness, that it would cause excessive tiredness by inhibiting the PARP? Yeah, exactly. This is very interesting. So we also thought about it. I mean, how come? I mean, it's a, if it's such a well-known inhibitor, I mean, what, did ever anyone notice something in human uh, about uh, sleepiness and sleep, sleep disturbances? And indeed, if you look carefully in the reviews of those uh, 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 treatments to human, you see that sleep disturbances is one of the key, actually, symptoms of the patient. Um, of course, I mean, there is many other patients other symptoms to the patient, but you, they always, I mean, the doctors that report in those papers, I mean, they always say, say that uh, treatment with a PARP inhibitor uh, causes uh, sleep disturbances, whether it's because DNA damage uh, is accumulated or not. I mean, we need to, to test in human, of course, but it's definitely associated sleep disturbances and PARP uh, inhibitor treatment. Well, maybe I should have mentioned your paper does look at PARP inhibitors in mice. And so what happened to mice? Exactly. So in order to extend the finding, uh, not only to larvae and also to adult, and to extend it from zebrafish also to mammals. So we, of course, uh, we, uh, did it with mice. And one uh, advantage of mice, I just mentioned many advantages of zebrafish, but one uh, nice advantage in, in, in 
mice is as, a, as that you able to measure EEG and non-REM and REM sleep. I mean, uh, using as uh, electrode. Uh, so we we measure EEG and behavior in the same time and gave the the power the mice uh, the PARP inhibitor, and we measure the sleep in the first thing in the morning. I would just mention that uh, zebrafish, like uh, humans, are, noct- are uh, diurnal animals, which means that they sleep during the night. However, mice are nocturnal animals, which means that they sleep during the day. So we gave the, the mice the PARP inhibitor, and uh, uh, like uh, zebrafish, a PARP inhibitor also inhibits sleep, and specifically non-REM sleep. So the amount of non-REM sleep was reduced, and also, when we, we, we look carefully on the, on the EEG, we saw that the slow-wave sleep, so the deep sleep, is also reduced in the, in the, the mice uh, uh, that were injected with the inhibitor. So this uh, really complements the experiment we, we did in uh, zebrafish. It's really interesting stuff. So the, I guess the other question, and maybe you have to speculate on this, maybe it's known, what, what is happening physiologically between PARP accumulation and that feeling we get? You know, I mean, I, I get this, I know from personal experience, I get this very pronounced feeling of tiredness that happens that is just, you know, you can't fight it. And is that just the brain kind of shutting down or is there, what's happening physiologically to link us to DNA damage to sleep itself? Yeah, so this is a, an open question that we're really interested also to, to study in the future. I mean, how do PARP1 signal the brain that it's time to sleep? I mean, obviously there is a pathway that eventually uh, likely in, uh, end up with the neuronal activity of the sleep and wake circuits that are well uh, studied and well uh, known. So there are various neurons in the brain that promote sleep. I mean, when I say promote, I mean the activity of those neurons promote sleep. So uh, somehow, I mean, the PARP... Uh, PARP uh, signal from a various uh, part of the brain that where, where the DNA damage is accumulated signals the brain that it's time to sleep and you have to induce the activity of those neurons or stimulate those neurons and in order to induce sleep. So at least in, uh, in zebrafish, uh, we think that after a certain uh, period, I mean, uh, six hours of sleep is enough and uh, PARP is reduced and DNA damage is reduced. Uh, how how long does it take in human? I mean, and what's the efficiency of our sleep? Is uh, definitely we need to study this. But uh, we suggest, I mean, uh, what I suggest here is that maybe we have like a a watch, or uh, we can measure basically the sleep pressure by measuring the amount of DNA damage uh, required. And let's like, even think about that in the context of modern neurological disease that, you know, as, as people die less from heart attacks and influenza, things like that, we see an increasing prevalence of diseases of long-term degenerative diseases like Alzheimer's or Parkinson's. And is there potentially a link here that, that, um, folks are maybe instead of going to sleep when they would naturally during evolution, I'm tired, I go to sleep, that they say, well, it's afternoon, I'll have another cup of coffee and uh, power through it. Is that actually causing potentially some of the damage that manifests as long-term neurodegenerative disease? Yeah. So again, here it's a speculation. I mean, there is no speculation. I mean, it's well known that sleep disturbances is one of the known phenotype of uh, neurodegenerative disease like Alzheimer's 
and Parkinson. I mean, they all report, even sometime before the onset of the disease, about uh, sleep disturbances. What we suggest here, and uh, that we maybe we can link uh, sleep disturbances with uh, uh, which what we suggest induce DNA damage, and eventually, if you don't sleep well for a long time, so maybe the, during a, a long time of uh, sleep uh, disturbances, maybe you accumulate DNA damage and even cell death or neurodegenerative process. And this may link uh, sleep disturbances eventually to neurodegenerative uh, disease. So this is definitely possible in a, a, a future uh, research direction. And also aging in general, not even neurodegenerative disease. Aging in general, we all know that the more we, be, the, the more we age, I mean, we have, it's more difficult to fall asleep. And maybe this is linked with uh, increased uh, DNA damage and possibly uh, reduced neuronal health. And eventually, I mean, uh, this would link everything. But this is definitely something to think about it, to first study in an animal, and we think to do it in a zebrafish and other animal model, and then to see how it's all linked together. I think this is fascinating because there are so many cultural overlays. I mean, there's some places where it's very common to work all morning, take a break in the afternoon, maybe go home, take a take a rest, come back and work until late at night. And in those kinds of cultures, do, are there any kind of associations that have been looked at between their long-term brain health and the way they break down their workday? Yeah, so there is uh, one or two studies in uh, doctors in uh, uh, that they uh, work in shifts. So they you know, for a long time, they have uh, uh, under a strong sleep deprivation. But again, when we think about it, don't think about one night, two night, one week. If we do it for a long, long time, like uh, doctors. So in this study, for example, they show that indeed those doctors uh, accumulate uh, DNA damage uh, as the DNA damage is increased. Whether it will end up with uh, no degenerative disease, we don't know. This is a long-term study that we still don't know. But uh, again, if we think about it, we all know it's very healthy to sleep. We all feel the pressure to sleep, and it's obviously that it's important for the brain. Why it's important, I think we gave the, just one more uh, clue to why it's important. It's important to uh, repair your uh, DNA uh, damage in, the, in neurons. Well, this is absolutely fascinating to me because not just because it's a cool molecular biology uh, story, but because I suffer from sleep disorders and I, I take medication to make sure that I can sleep. And uh, I know that I get during the middle of the day, there's certain days that I will have a feeling in my head that says I have to close my eyes. I close my eyes and instantly start dreaming and I'll sleep for maybe five minutes just sitting there in my chair. And I wake up and then I feel perfect. And it's just like, uh, so this, I relate very well to this. And maybe my DNA damage mechanisms are really quick. And maybe you can use me in the future or maybe <laughs> analyze my brain. <laughs> yeah, maybe, maybe. I mean, the access to the DNA damage in human, it's kind of difficult. Uh, our brain is not transparent, but yeah, but this is very interesting. All the field of power nap and all the what we people think that, it, but 
maybe it's enough. I mean, definitely different animals also speak, uh, sleep different amount of time. Some uh, sleep only two hours, some uh, sleep 18 hours. So how come? So maybe it's all, uh, it's, it's linked to their uh, repair system. Maybe some repair system are highly efficient and two hours is enough. And maybe in some other animals or other human, uh, six hours is what is required. As, as I said, what we know now is only about zebrafish, and in zebrafish at least it's six hours. So like you said, if they sleep only two hours, and then the following day you feel like they feel the need to sleep. So like you, they sleep during the day under the light, and then eventually complete the repairs that it's come back to baseline, and then they can wake up. So maybe this is what you suffer from, and you don't sleep enough, you feel the urge to, to fall asleep again during the day, and then eventually the brain signal you, okay, it's time to wake up, you are ready. Yeah, imagine how smart a bear must be after coming out of hibernation. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, although, yeah, exactly. Although hibernation is kind of different from sleep and uh, from anesthesia, so it's different that people say, tend to think about everything together. That's similar, but it's actually a different mechanism. Oh, that's really cool. I didn't think about that because during anesthesia or during hibernation, yeah, it's a completely different program. You're not running those sleep cycles like normally. Exactly. Really. exactly. Well, all of this work really can't be done without a really extensive interdisciplinary team. So who else worked on this project? So the leading uh, scientist or the leading postdoc that they actually did all the experiment was uh, David Zada and other members of our lab and the mice uh, story was uh, in collaboration with the lab of uh, Yuval Nir from Tel Aviv University that really helped us to execute all the ma mouse uh, experiments. Very good. Well, Professor Lior Applebaum, thank you so much for joining me on the podcast. Best wishes in the future and please don't hesitate to reach out during the next big discovery. I would love to have you back again. Thank you very much. No problem. And as always, thank you to the listener for staying with us through another episode of the Talking Biotech Podcast. Write reviews, maybe send us a little love on Patreon. Every dollar goes to expand our audience and the ratings get better all the time. So we really appreciate that you're sharing with friends and family and helping us tell the beautiful stories of science. This is the Talking Biotech Podcast, and we'll talk to you again next week. The Talking Biotech Podcast reflects the personal views of Dr. Kevin Fulta and its guests. These are not the views of the University of Florida, its faculty, staff, or students. But after all, it is science, so they probably are, but it has to be clear that there is no university affiliation with this podcast, which is a damn shame, but I guess that's how it goes. So feel free to share this science communication effort, recommend guests, and support us with a few shekels over on Patreon. We invest all funds back into promotion of the podcast to widen the audience, enhance production, and expand science communication efforts in many ways. Thank you for listening to the Talking Biotech Podcast.
You've been listening to Talking Biotech, sponsored by Calabra, the platform that bridges the gap between siloed research tools. With Calabra's electronic lab notebook, scientists can work together in real time, sharing data and insights with ease. Revolutionize your research collaboration. Sign up for a demo today at calabra.app, C-O-L-A-B-R-A dot A-P-P.